podcaster's note, this episode features heavy spoilers of the movie A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. If you've never seen the movie before or are looking forward to participating in this episode by submitting a review, go and watch the movie first before listening to the show. If you've seen it before, continue on. Don't say you've not been warned. Terror. Biting. Clawing. Gnawing its way into your brain. She was standing there in front of me. In her fur coat. So, she takes it off. Not a bloody stitch on. Hate. As personal as your own pulse. Welcome to another episode of Where to Begin With. This season, season one, looking at where to begin with the subgenre of Giallo. This show is particularly poised to take you on a journey from novice to genre heavyweight as we pick a topic each season um, that you might be familiar with or you might have never dabbled in and give you a clear route, my suggested path to take you from where is the logical starting point and stretch those muscles out as we work through some of the classics and some of those roads that are less trodden than others. Now on this season thus far, we are really early in our journey. We have covered off two of the what would be seen as templates for what would be the dominance of Giallo in Italian cinema over about a three to four year period. We've already looked at Bird with a Crystal Plumage on episode one and Blood and Black Lace in episode number two. The fun part of this show is that you guys get to chip in your two cents into the conversation as well. At the end of this episode, I will read out reviews from the previous episode. So the previous movie was Blood and Black Lace and we're going to get to your thoughts on that at the very end of this episode. Next month, you guys can write in and let me know what you made of Lizard in a Woman's Skin. And then we'll announce the next movie, we'll move on, and it repeats ad nauseum until the end of the season. Now this season has 10 episodes, one dropping per month, with one Jalo movie coming your way each month. And this episode has been delayed. There are a myriad of different reasons why it has been delayed. I won't bore you here, but suffice to say, the episode has arrived at last. You can only hear it exclusively on the Teapots Collective. We are surrounded by phenomenal other shows that I put out. Now, I say phenomenal because I am being not modest in the slightest here. There's a lot of hard work goes into what we do in the Teapots Collective and alongside this show you listen to Doing the Nasty which is exclusively looking at the Tier 3 movies in the UK Video Nasties list, Opera Omnia which is exclusively looking at a director's body of work per season on season 1 looking at Ben Wheatley 
and of course Chronicle Podcast, which is a little side shoot podcast that I do, looking exclusively at European horror cinema, and it's season three, looking at British folk horror. So yeah, plenty of other things to keep you entertained. But let's get down to brass tacks, ladies and gents. The movie that I announced at the end of episode number two was A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, deftly handled by a director who would more commonly be known as the godfather of gore, a man who embraced his inner freak and got plenty of actors covered in gunk and maggots and the later part of his career would start off in the early 70s as a jack-of-all-trades doing mysteries, doing um, supernatural thrillers, doing police procedurals, doing westerns. This guy was doing a bit of everything. It's a surprising feat to think that Lucio Fulci would be the man behind a kind of crime thriller which actually acts more in its ability not to play its cards on the table or go out for the all-out shop factor that that director would be known for and instead tangles this this tight little kind of tense thriller uh, of murder, mystery, deception and lust in only the great way that The Godfather could. So let's give you some information about this movie. A Lizard in a Woman's Skin comes out in 1971 and is directed and co-written by Lucio Fulci. Now, there is a ton of people involved with the not only the story but the screenplay. Fulci tended to lean into a lot of the screenplays that were written for his movies and in a lot of respects, it's him coming up with an idea and people kind of fleshing it out or, on the other hand, it could be people approaching him with a script or him acquiring a script and then putting his own stamp over it. So alongside Lucio Fulci, you have Roberto Giovanti um, and uh, Jose Luis Martinez Mola and Andy Tranch uh, that are all involved in some capacity uh, with working on this project. The cast, you have a few names that are pretty much synonymous with Italian genre cinema of the late 60s and early 70s, but specifically in the world of the giallo, you have Florinda Balkin, uh, Jean Sorel, Stanley Baker, Sylvia Monti, Alberto de Mendoza, Penny Brown, Mike Kennedy, you have George Renault, uh, Ezio Marono, Franco Balducci, and some other folks assigned to this. Now, on top of all this, it's worth saying straight away that Luigi Coveria is the cinematographer and what a cinematographer he is. And the kind of art direction behind this one, helmed by Roman Catalod and Maurizio Chari. You also have like other names that are worth mentioning at this time here, specifically when it comes to the score. Now, if we're talking about the impact of at this time, things like Bird with a Crystal Plumage, um, one of the direct links you can take straight from Bird with a Crystal Plumage straight into this movie is the fact that this one is also scored by the great Ennio Morricone and what a score it is. 
Morricone has so many credits against his name, it's quite difficult to actually know where to begin with when talking about this guy's, you know, best or his impact specifically on genre cinema. Um, his hands are all over it, to be honest, especially in this time, in this part of the world. He helms some of the greatest scores, scores that are at times more memorable than the movies that are actually attached to. That's not to say that that's where we are here. I think this movie does stand on its own two feet quite a bit and is more than memorable. A lot of people will remember specific scenes or details in here um, before they necessarily mention the score, but I think it's one of those ones where there's a symbiotic process between what Morricone is, you know, as writing as music in the background, and at times how Fulci is using it prevalently in sequences to make it stand out that little bit more. So it's a link between those two, but I mean, it's not the only link. And we can see that whilst Bird with the Crystal Plumage is the one that really sets a template for sure, are we travelling that far down the road one year on when we take a look at a movie like Lizard in a Woman's Skin? I mean, it's worth delving into. I think the best way to do that, though, is to probably start with plot. Because we've already kind of marked out for you on episode one what that template was that proved so successful with international audiences, but I did say at the time it would spark this revolution of filmmaking, this renaissance of kind of crime thriller cinema, which even Argento himself tried to distance himself from. Uh, Mario Bava did as well, we spoke about that in the previous episode, yet both directors end up right back in making them because they were tried-tested and incredibly successful. Easy to make in a lot of respects, and audiences lapped them up for a good four-year period in Italian cinema. So, let's get a bit dirty. Let's get our fingers in and let's get into the nitty-gritty and discuss some of the plot points behind a lizard in a woman's skin and at the same time then lean back and kind of mark where we are in comparison with Blood and Black Lace and, of course, Bird with a Crystal Plumage. In this movie, we have Carol Hammond. She's played by Florinda Balkin, who would go on and work with Filchi just one year later. And what I would I would hedge to say is, you know, his best giallo movie and maybe even his best movie in Don't Torture a Duckling. She is from a fairly affluent family, um, you know, uh, daughter to a kind of lawyer-turned-politician. And her husband, played by Jean Sorel, who, you know, this guy has leading man written all over him. We will come back to deal with him later on in the series when we look at The Short Night of the Glass Doll. But he is such a striking leading man. There's something about his eyes. His eyes are very, for lack of a better word, dreamy. Um, that, you know, it's difficult not to kind of get lost in them a little bit. And, you know, uh, he plays Frank in this movie who is her husband and is working away as a lawyer at a, a practice uh, in Brighton. We're seeing this movie set in the UK. And, you know, she's spending all her time kind of alone in this, this big apartment building. I mean, maybe even shades of kind of Rosemary's Baby in there to an extent with that. 
and she is, um, you know, sharing it for the most part with, a, you know, Frank's teenage daughter from a previous marriage. Trust me, like, Florinda Balkan does not look old enough to be the mother of Ella Galian, um, who plays Joan in this movie. Um, it's also worth saying that she's kind of, at the, at the moment, being kind of psychoanalyzed um, due to this scene of what the movie portrays as, you know, not, not normal dreams because of their kind of lesbian content, their homoerotic appeal, so to speak, that she is having with specifically uh, people in her building, uh, mostly played by Anita Strindberg, who, you know, if you're going to have one of those dreams, Anita Strindberg is, you know, you're not doing wrong with that. Um, this kind of, you know, this kind of duality in, in her fantasies is kind of played down as this depraved thing. I think on some level, Fulci's having a go at the way Italy in the early 70s is still perceiving a lot of things like homosexuality, uh, drug use, you know, kind of wanton sexual liberation. And he would continue that on. He's, he, you know, he's, he's for all his uh, ability to gross people out on the screen, he is really good at leaning back into kind of shining a, a mirror at the repressiveness of Italian life, but also British life as well. Carol's dreams start to get a bit more vivid, uh, a bit more lurid, and um, during one of her dreams in particular, there is a violent scene where she stabs Anita Strindberg's character to death, um, kind of viciously, and what kind of disturbs her even more is in her dream she observes uh, two people, kind of hooded, that don't appear to want to get involved to stop the the kind of violence at all, instead kind of partaking as a bystander to it. Of course, as fate would have it, um, the following day it's revealed that her neighbour has indeed been murdered and um, the, the crime scene is eerily similar to that of Carol's uh, hallucination, her, her dream almost kind of pointing to the fact of this disconnect between what is reality and, you know, what what might be complete fiction fabrication of a delusional mind. At this point, it's worth kind of stressing that this is moving off the kind of beaten path of what we understand as being Jalo, that what was said the previous year was the other way around, wasn't it? The innocent bystander observing the murder would have been the Carol character she would have seen this in some sort of hallucination and then maybe, maybe, continued down the road of trying to work out what the crime was, uh, aiding and abetting the police to try and get to the bottom of it. So we're already kind of turning things on its head and that's mostly, I believe, because in the time period between Bird with a Crystal Plumage and Lizard in a Woman's Skin, there's a lot of jello already being released. Now that might seem a bit unbelievable to you, listening because we're talking about the space of a year, a filmic year um, of productions but there's already a ton being released, like I said before these movies, fairly inexpensive very quick to churn out, very quick to edit and very quick to put out so 
you know, you've already got a throng of them that have been released in this time period. So people are already starting to look at quirkier ways to make their movie stand out above all the others. Of course, our plot is going to thicken even further. The police investigation ultimately is going to turn to Carol. She's, you know, she's already kind of involved anyway in some respects in that what she has seen, what she has confessed from, uh, from a psychoanalyzed point of view is what looks like has happened. Interestingly, when she's out on an excursion, she goes away shopping because retail therapy, y'all, um, while she's out there, she sees her stepdaughter and her stepdaughter appears to be in the company of the two bystanders from her dream. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, the plot thickens. All roads are eventually going to lead to Carol and they're even going to find the murder weapon with her fingerprints on it. And, you know, this is a open and shut case, except a detective starts to get cold feet. He starts to think that maybe, maybe there's something more at play here. Could it be that on some level, Carol has been manipulated? This vision that she had somehow implanted in her brain to confess to, for her to ultimately take the fall. And as far-fetched as that sounds, this is kind of the direction the movie is going to start pushing us towards in the most kind of 70s trippy psychedelic sort of way. Things kind of start to go for bad to worse uh, for Carol because, you know, uh, you know, Jallo as a subgenre really does like to punish its characters really, really, really much. Um, what you have in this particular thing is that Carol ends up in a mental facility, sanatorium, um, under constant supervision and guards. And she, whilst kind of roaming the grounds, sees one of the hippies break in and try to chase her. Um, now, this is one of the people from her vision, her hallucination, that could be potentially involved with the murder and she runs for her life and manages to escape but of course no one no one in this facility believes her they think that she is you know even more delusional than she was before or maybe just plain making this up to perpetuate some sort of story of innocence there's all manner of things happening in the background though remember when i said at the beginning that carol's father was a lawyer slash politician well he starts to investigate the case and very, very quickly finds out that Frank, played by the dreamy Jean Sorel, has been having an affair. And not only has he been having an affair, um, Anita Strindberg, living next door, she's been blackmailing him for quite some time about it. And now the plot is twisting and turning again. With this evidence, there is now reasonable doubt that maybe Carol was actually involved with it at all. And maybe Frank has set her up, and thus she is released from the institution and uh, was kind of brought back into normal life. And now all eyes are on Frank as he is kind of scrambling around trying to prove that he is not involved in the murder. One of the, the kind of bystanders from the vision, the woman, it's worth saying there's a woman and a man, she gets in touch with Carol and says, listen, I know what happened, I can give you the evidence, uh, but you just need to meet me. And of course she foolishly agrees to do that and when she does, the man who pursued her through the grounds of the institution chases her down, stabs her quite viciously. Um, and it looks like the days of Carol being alive and on this planet are over until the police manage to arrive just in the nick of time to save her. So we're kind of setting up 
potential killers here, aren't we? Is Carol's visions real or not? Is Jean Sorel the killer after all? Doing it as a way to silence a blackmailer? Um, could it be? Could it be Joan, the stepdaughter, who seems to be friends of this hippie couple who were um, in the vision of death and, you know, ultimately trying to kill Carol at this point. Well, Joan meets up with the, the hippie woman and claims that she doesn't know where Carol is and she's then found the following day murdered as well. So that's one off the list. So if you're sitting there with a list of potential suspects, we can now score off Joan uh, she definitely wasn't it. But why was she involved? Who are these people? And and why did she kind of lie about where Carol was? But the police are on the case now and, you know, getting very involved. Our main detective, Corvin, here manages to track down the hippie couple who weirdly, weirdly confess to not only the murder of Joan, but the attempted murder of Carol, but will refuse point blank to admit to any involvement with the death of Julia, very much like in the vision that we saw they were standing watching. All they seem to be able to remember is a lizard in a woman's skin, is the phrase that they use, which obviously is where the, the movie itself gets its name from. And just when you think things couldn't get stranger, uh, the police receive a call saying that Carl's father has committed suicide at his kind of stately manor, and he's left a suicide note which confesses to the murder of Julia after all. So maybe this is an open and shut case. But, you know, if you are like myself, you're thinking none of this makes sense. Um, why is he the killer? That can't be right. And we've seen enough of these movies now, even though we are only two in, to know that there's something afoot here. Maybe another twist and turn that will be revealed at the end. And what I kind of love about this kind of reveal at the end here is it kind of completely subverts the expectation. Um, in a lot of respects, when we cover Deep Red, which will be one of the later movies in the series, we are going to see that at times the best weapon in a Jalo's defence is to make the resolution as kind of painfully obvious as possible. So like the answer's always been right in front of you. You just needed time to put the pieces together. And um, it's not until attending her father's funeral that the police officer has a conversation with Carol and she accidentally lets slip a bit of information about Julia, which when that information is slipped, allows Corvin to deduce exactly what happened. It turns out those lucid dreams that Carol was having about having a lesbian affair next door actually kind of did happen and of course we know Julia is a bit of a blackmailer and not only is she blackmailing the you know husband but maybe she's blackmailing the wife and as a way to silence her Carol gets involved she's actually the one who kills her exactly like we saw in the hallucination when she commits a crime she notices that there are a couple and in this case are bystanders who observe her and she panics and she flees the crime scene altogether and she kind of expects that, you know, these people are going to do the honourable thing and turn her into the police, she's going to get arrested. So she tries to preempt everything, knowing fine well that she's already 
you know, going to see a specialist about her dreams, and she has a history of that, she concocts the whole story vividly in her dream log as a way to kind of play it off as some sort of, well, you know, I, I had a vision of this thing that happened and maybe it didn't, maybe it didn't, to throw suspicion completely into the investigation. Little did she know that the hippies himself, our bystanders, were out there tits on LSD, hence the trippiness, hence the lizard in the woman's skin. They didn't really know what was happening or register what was happening at all. And as a result of that, didn't go to the police. And foolishly, Carol has kind of confessed to murder. Which is how this movie ends, with her being led away from her father's grave in handcuffs. Because that's the best way to finish a movie like this. So, I mean... Lizard and the Woman's Skin is... I, I've, I've heard some people say that it's a painfully slow movie and I, I just don't get that. I've also heard people say, you know, it's sleazy because of the involvement of, you know, kind of the, the female form and the interactions of lesbian sex. You know, it's clearly there for male titillation. And I would disagree with that as well. I'm sure that has an element with it, but it certainly pushes the justification and plot for the murder later on in the movie. It's a movie which, weirdly, like, Fulci is kind of, you know, the story itself is this idea of muddying the water, of someone kind of planning cold-heartedly and maliciously to murder someone and get things, you know, have an alibi of some description, which at the most will have her locked up in a, you know, sanatorium for a while until she can prove that she's sane and be released, ultimately avoiding the prison sentence that she most certainly deserves. And the kind of spiral that, you know, her actions has specifically on the other characters. So it's very different from Bird with the Crystal Plumage in that respect. I mean, it's all about the mystery. It's all about taking the audience through the, the journey of did something happen, didn't happen, did I see something, didn't I see something? Um, but it's far more playful instead making you kind of purposely trip through the entire movie with the, you know, with the antagonist, with the murderer uh, and being unsure of the, the stature of her involvement at all with anything, setting up as many red herrings as we can and taking us off in a completely different crime spree which is happening at the same time. So it's quite clever in that fashion. Like I say, Ennio Morricone, amazing score in this one. Cinematography is the tits. I mean, I really, really like it. Uh, Luigi Colvieri, um, which I'm fairly sure I'm pronouncing horribly, horribly wrong, uh, worked with the best. You know, he worked with your Dario Argentos, your uh, Andy Warhols. Um, you know, he did, he did a lot of stuff. And it works really well here. The kind of use of really kind of trippy cinematography um, juxtaposed with the kind of grey skyline of London. Um, it all kind of works hand in hand here. It really makes it, you know, something that has a lot of appeal to me visually. It might not have the attractive streets and structures and architecture and fashion of Italy, but there is so much to bring in in this. And actually that kind of kind of colour scape, so to speak, really makes the movie stand out amongst other movies at the time. 
I mean, when you're looking at Filchie's involvement with this one, this is not one of the first giallos that Filchie had done. He'd been involved with quite a few beforehand. Um, to be honest with you, when it comes to kind of covering his his work, he'd been doing stuff in the world of kind of crime mystery thrillers before this one and, you know, would continue on after it, whether it's a movie like Don't Torture a Duckling or even something as kind of a bit more, um, for lack of a better word, uh, supernatural, but at the same time, definitely, you know, in the realms of a giallo and the psychic, which comes out kind of late 70s. It's also only a couple of years removed from a, a perversion story, which came out two years before. Uh, a perversion story is much more a typically kind of Hitchcockian thriller, um, and as a result is kind of seen as a, on some respects, a kind of proto-giallo uh, by the standards of what Argento would do, you know, a year later. But certainly within that realm as well, also has a similar kind of vibe with putting your your supposed protagonist in prison for a period of time uh, and the, the kind of love triangle and the, the lust and the murder and all the rest. It's in a similar world, but you can definitely tell that this movie has the, the shine of uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage afterwards because it's, it's far more lurid than his previous works. And moving into... I mean, it doesn't even necessarily have that high a body count compared to other giallos, but it's definitely a bit more vicious than the stuff that Filchie had done before, so he's certainly finding his feet with that one. Ultimately, it's... I mean, it's in the same genre, but it's a completely different take, a different spin on giallo in general. And I think what you'll find when you sit down and watch this movie, and hopefully you did that before I spoiled the ending... Um, what you'll find is that this story rests on its unreliable depiction of its narrator, which I think is the, the best sort of, you know, kind of giallo. And a whole is the ones where you ultimately are left not even able to trust the person that you should be, the, the victim, the person that you are at eye height with all the way throughout the movie so I, I think it's a, a wonderful one with that and like I say note the amazing cinematography note the score because it, it really is uh, kind of spectacular and another one of those Ennio Morricone classics um, but yeah it's, it's worth checking out the reason I put it here on your journey is that things get really weird in Jello not long after this and we start going kind of psychosexual uh, supernatural um, are, are just downright bonkers and this is a good stepping point to get you out of the comfort zone of two movies that are seen as templates and more traditional in their structure and move somewhere else. So yeah, you know the drill ladies and gents, what I need from you is your opinions on it. If you've never seen it before please let me know what your first viewing was. If it's been a while please let me know anyway. You can do that by sending an email to either podcast under the stairs at gmail.com or teaputscollective at gmail.com. Put a lizard in the woman's skin as your subject header or where to begin with Jalo or something to make it stand out and let me know your thoughts on this movie. It doesn't have to be the most detailed review but let me know what you made of it and maybe compare it to the two that we've done before. Where does it sit for you? Um, is this you know furthering your interest in Jalo, or is this one maybe a blip on our journey thus far? You can let me know by emailing 
podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com or send it through to teaputzcollective at gmail.com. Now, I'm giving you slightly less time than I usually would. Uh, The next episode of this will be coming out the week of the 15th of June. But it's probably going to be towards the end. So we'll see reviews in for the 18th of June. That gives you two and a bit weeks to check out the movie, get your thoughts down and get them sent in for the 18th of June. Right, let's turn our attention to some of your thoughts out there. uh, Looking back over Blood and Black Lace. So, Kidoki, our first review is from long-term listener and supporter of Podcasts Under the Stairs, making our way over to the Jallo journey here on where to begin with. It's Kate Pollock. She says, Hi, Duncan. I'm so sorry for not inputting a review for Bird with the Crystal Plumage. I really meant to do it. And then time just slipped by me and I was totally let down. Trust me, you were not, and thank you very much for feeling so passionately about it, Kate. She said, so I promised myself that I would ensure I contributed next time. So here is my review of Blood and Black Lace. So this was my first watch, and aside from the bits that you had said in the episode and my own minimal Jallo knowledge, I had no idea what to expect. I think this may have also been my very first Mario Bava experience. So yeah, fresh eyes on this one and I was hooked from the opening credits. They were beautiful, and I didn't think I'd seen actors slash characters be used in that way for a title sequence before. It was very cool. The colours used throughout were just nothing short of gorgeous. I can now see why and where Bava has influenced other filmmakers like Argento for sure, but the cinematography strongly reminded me of Peter Strickland's In Fabric. Granted, I haven't seen any other pieces of his work, so maybe it was only in In Fabric, and he used that sort of imagery. And honestly, I could be completely off the mark here, but I was strongly reminded of it, and almost expected the black-haired saleswoman to creep out of the shadows. I'll be honest with you, Kate, you're spot on with that. Strickland, big fan of Giallo, big fan of Bava. And yes, the colour scheme, specifically in Infabric, definitely evokes uh, Blood and Black Lace. And when you think about the story itself, it deals with fashion. And there are few Giallos that are you know, unabashedly Giallo-esque than uh, Blood and Black Lace. So I think you're spot on there. She says, anyway, the cinematography in the movie was stunning. I especially loved opening shot of the Christian hot couture and a sign falling with the lightning, really gothic and cool. And the scene shortly after of Isabella walking through the trees at the beginning is beautiful. There's also this amazing shot of Peggy behind these flickering flames in the fireplace, which I adored. And just generally, such a striking use of colour throughout. I thought the storyline was gripping and not too convoluted, which could have been a danger with all the webs of deceit and secrets. It worked well, and although I had suspicion of who the murderer was from a relatively early stage, I hadn't worked out all of who was involved, and the end reveal worked nicely. With the kills maintaining good suspense consistently throughout the movie. The kills were great. The face burning in particular really stands out to me, especially with the hand torture beforehand. The effects were also awesome and really effective, making me cringe a little as I watched it. I also really enjoyed the scene when Nicole is being chased and there's a lot of misdirection and background creepiness. Oh, what's that shadow? Was that him? Etc. That you see in a lot of films that are more modern. It worked well for suspense and you find yourself searching for the killer, just as much as Nicole. 
I also liked how each kill was different and interesting. It made the experience even more enjoyable because it wasn't just a bunch of people being stabbed every time. I also really liked the score. Sometimes it seemed a bit jarring and out of place, but I think that's just the style of the times. And so I ended up rolling with it and appreciating what I was hearing. The music itself, though, was really interesting and much more of your standard dark, intense tones that you get with other horror subgenres, like a lot of European cinema in the 60s and 70s. The music is just as much of the experience as anything you're seeing on the screen. And once I got used to it, I was 100% in. Lastly, the acting wasn't even terrible. Every time I go into one of these movies, I brace myself for the OTT performances. But I was fully suckered into these characters. I'm honestly struggling to find anything I didn't like about this movie. I don't want to shoot my load early on though, so I'm going to give this one a little wiggle room and give it a 4.5 out of 5, okay? A smidge of a wiggle room, but I did genuinely really fucking like this movie. I'm intrigued to see what everyone else thought and excited to continue on this giallo journey with you, Duncan, and all the listeners. Hope you're doing okay and the family are doing as well. Chat on Thursday for Chud. Whoop. Um, she is referring to our podcast Under the Stairs Thursday screenings. We do uh, watch along commentaries and we cover Chud. Thank you very much for submitting that in, Kate. To be honest, I am like ecstatic with that review and that you enjoyed it as much as you did because that is part and parcel of doing these things. It's one of the oldest movies that, um, in fact, it is the oldest movie that we will cover on this particular series. It's not the oldest movie at all, actually. When I think about it, Bava himself directed uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much before this. Um, and it's in black and white, so it is a giallo for sure, and it definitely fits that mould, but because of its lack of colour, at times it's disregarded, or maybe overlooked, so yeah, I mean, if you're high on life just now, and a bit of Mario Bava, jump back to The Girl That Knew Too Much, came out, I think it's the year before, or maybe two years before Blood and Black Lace, and it certainly, certainly is, you know, it's ticking the boxes there, just done uh, in black and white. We also got a review in from our good buddy Andrew who says, I watched Blood and Black Lace for the first time a year ago and it instantly shot up to being my favourite Jallo of all time. In a way, I call it Halloween of Jallo by laying out the story, the visual style, the killer's wardrobe, weapon of choice and the templates that would become more common in the boom of the Jallo movement to follow. Cinematography is my favourite aspect of the film and that's where this one shines. My god, these colours are gorgeous. I could go on for hours. And the use of old world Italian architecture create a dreamlike world that dazzles the brain. It's also fascinating to compare how visually this one contrasts with Psycho, given that they're only a few years apart. The story is simple. Who doesn't love a little murder mystery and cocaine? Which is perfectly fine. I'm here for the visuals and incredible score. Speaking of its score, it gives such a 60s James Bond vibe with all the jazziness and brass instruments bellowing. As I've already stated, this is my favourite Jallo, so it deserves nothing less than a 5 out of 5. Thank you very much, Andrew, for that review. I look forward to seeing if you partake in some more and if there's any on this list that you haven't seen. And last up is the audio review from longtime friend of the show, David Garrett Jr. David says... Hello again, Duncan and T-Puts listeners. David Garrett Jr. back again for Where to Begin with Giallo. 
on this episode covering Blood and Black Lace. Now, just a little bit of history for me with this movie is I had first heard about this from Fangoria's top 300 horror movies. So I ended up watching it as I decided just to go alphabetical order through them. So this actually technically, I think, would be the second Giallo film that I had ever watched. But I really didn't have much knowledge on the subgenre still at this time. And I'll admit that first time I watched it, I was a little bit bored. But it was as I've listened to more podcasts and heard people cover this movie here it really started to open my eyes and this would actually be the third time that i've watched this so i'm glad duncan that you recommended this one on here so i could you know give it a one more proper rewatch here because i have to say i absolutely love this movie this time around what I really enjoyed to find out was that this is the first Jalo film that was ever made in color. What makes this interesting though for me is that what I used to find boring about it actually made me like it even more this time around. I like that we get this initial murder, but even before that you have the two characters who are talking outside and you know that there's something up and I mean, I have like I said seen this before, but I immediately thought there was something up with drugs there, but once you get that initial murder and then when you find out about the diary i love how they introduce all these red herrings at this fashion show where she calls out that she has found it and everybody turns their attention and then you almost get a little bit of like a 10 little indians here where people are getting picked off so that's how you kind of realize that they aren't the killer now i knew this time around and i remembered who the killers were so this time it actually made me kind of focus on how they could play everything out. And I think I might have it down as to who is doing most of the killings. But I like that right before all of the men are taken into the police station and being held for questioning, that we get to see that the killer has this little pocketbook where you can write down notes on it. And right before that is being introduced though, we see that the diary of Isabella was taken by I believe Nicole and that her reasoning for doing it is that she wants to avoid scandal that she had an abortion so what I end up liking is that we have a kill while all the men are being held so it kind of makes it like well maybe that person can't be the killer but as they're being released from jail you see who the person actually is and I thought that was kind of an interesting way to do that and to kind of build up the story from there because the moment they get out, you end up seeing that that person is indeed the killer and that they're just not working alone. Something I also find interesting is that this being the first Giallo, we actually don't even get the fact that we have somebody else doing the investigation because Inspector Sylvester isn't a bumbling cop. He is going about his job the right way and is following evidence. It's just that there's not enough there. And I like that he's the one that is leading the investigation. But outside of him, I don't even necessarily know if we have a main character here. So that's something I found to be intriguing. And something I haven't really brought up yet is I first knew about the last name Bava from Lamberto Bava. And that was because Demons was a staple of a, of a movie that I watched as a child a lot. So it's pretty interesting here to see his father, Mario, and I have to say, he shoots the heck out of this movie. I know that one of my favorite movies is Suspiria, and I can definitely see the influence that Dario Argento took from this movie here, because you do get some bright colors, especially red. Like, there's a bunch of mannequins that have that color on them, and then the phones all seem to be that color as well. So I find this to be pretty interesting as well, and there's just some beautiful shots that we get throughout this movie where... This time around, I was really kind of focusing on that. 
Um, I'm a big fan of the main theme that we get here and just the very horn heavy music that we get throughout. I thought it fit and definitely helps to build the tension. The kills are a little bit light, but I think a lot of that is this came out in 1964, so they weren't really going that heavy yet. But this is really just one that I'm really glad that I got to see again because it's this final viewing that I had here that really kind of made me appreciate it even more. And I actually might think I might have this on my rotation just because of how much I enjoyed it and that I would watch, you know, once a year at least. And I mean, I do have to give Mario also credit is the cast is really good. And we just have a bunch of beautiful women here. But I have to admit, I really did find the Countess to be the most beautiful. So Eva Bartok really was one that I thought was quite good looking, even though she is a little bit crazy. But that might be part of what I'm attracted to as well. But that's all I really wanted to talk about on this film. But my rating here would be a 4.5 out of 5. I'm quite excited for the next selection Duncan as I'm a big Fulci fan and I've never actually seen a lizard and woman skin so pretty excited to give this one a watch as well. David Garrett Jr. signing off. And thanks very much to David Garrett Jr. for dropping in his thoughts on this movie. Glad you dug it on your rewatch and very excited to hear that it is now making a, a continued rotation in your future viewing. Uh, also, like super excited that you have never seen um, a lizard and a woman's skin before. I think you're going to dig it quite a bit, man. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your review for that movie in a couple of weeks' time. So, where do we go next? What is the next movie I'm choosing? Well, I'm on a bit of an Ennio Morricone bent at the moment. Uh, one of my favourite Jalo scores of all time is on a little movie called Spasmo from 1974. Now, what's really interesting about this one is very much like Fulci is considered this kind of, you know, very gory, very over-the-top, very exploitative director later on in his career. So is the guy who directs this one. We are going to be covering uh, Spasmo, directed by Umberto Lenzi, who would be heavily involved in a whole series of uh, debacles in the late 70s, early 80s with cannibal movies in Italy. Um, and it's kind of seen in a lot of respects as being a bit of a hack and that is so unfair to him because not only did he essentially direct the first Italian cannibal movie many years before they became popular, but he releases some really interesting giallo work in the 70s and Spasmo might be the very best of all of them. So yeah, that is what we'll be covering on the next episode of Where To Begin With Jallo. It's movie number four on our list. It takes a traditional but slightly unorthodox turn um, and brings us back into what would be towards the end of the Jallo Hades. 74 is when things are starting to wind down. Doesn't mean the end is nigh for the genre. It just means that it's not as popular as it was before. So, a good couple of years removed from the release of Bird with a Crystal Plumage, how has the genre changed? We'll find out when we discuss Spasmo. Right, I just want to thank everyone out there for getting involved. Remember, get your reviews in for a lizard in a woman's skin no later than the 18th of June. Um, but yeah, enjoy your journey. Try flicks now and checking movies we've not mentioned yet. They may be on the list somewhere down the line, but let me know. And also drop me some love and let me know what you're thinking of this series. 
Um, it's running to the end of the year, so we still have six movies in the Jalo Sundra genre to pick off before the end, but I'm interested to think and hear your thoughts on where we're going and any ideas on what you might have in store for where you would like to see us go in season two. Right, take care of yourselves out there. Thank you for supporting this show. Make sure you subscribe to the Teapots Collective and that way you get all the shows over on that feed, including this one as a, as a plethora, a smorgasbord of phenomenal content that you can check out covering some of the best and more obscure in the genre. But until I speak to you next month, remember that very much like Jallo cinema, anyone could be the killer. Even you. This is Duncan McLeish from Where to Begin with Jallo, signing off. <laughs>